It's Zhang Hu Hustle. Hello, everyone. We are here for episode two of Zhang Hu Hustle. I'm Eli Kurtz, and I'm here with Eric Farmer. How's it going, Eric? I'm great. Good, good. Yeah, so uh, episode two, we're here to talk about the Zhang Hu, contrasting that with the last episode where we talked about the Shah. So, uh, whereas the Shah is the character, the heroic protagonistic character who uh, wanders through the world of Kung Fu, the Zhang Hu is the world of Kung Fu itself. And uh, we have a couple of movies that we're discussing as we go about this. Uh, they are Iron Monkey, a 1993 film written by Sui Hark and directed by Yun Wo Ping, and uh, The Magic Blade, a 1976 film written by Kuang Ni and directed by Yuan Chor. So, uh, yeah, I know Iron Monkey is one of my very favorite movies, and I think The Magic Blade is up there for you, right? You know, I discovered it fairly recently, and it just shot right up to the top of the list. Yeah, well, I mean... Uh, I've never seen a kung fu movie quite like it, mm -hmm. and I think it's really going to help us expand out the concept of the Jung Hu. So if you can dig it up, it's a little hard to find, but if you can dig it up, it's totally worth watching. Yeah, if only for Devil Grandma alone, oh, it's man, worth watching. Devil Grandma. <laughs> so um, I guess we should start off with a little bit of a definition here. Zhang Hu is, as we said earlier, the world of martial arts. It translates literally to lakes and rivers. And it's what you might call a heterotopia if you are a follower of uh, French philosophy. <laughs> yeah, would, 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 one, would one call it that? Yeah, I uh, well, I guess most people wouldn't, actually. <laughs> we had toyed around with calling it just an underworld, but it's not quite that, you know? I mean, I think most people, when they hear underworld, think of Hades or something like that from Greek mythology, whereas this is uh, not a mythological place so much as it is a uh, real-world-adjacent place, I guess. Yeah, I, it's definitely an in-between world. Yeah. And as we get into especially the Magic Blade... It shares some qualities, some mythic qualities, mm -hmm. with what you might think of as a mythical underworld. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's definitely sort of society adjacent and and lingering in this, this space between society and government and law and criminality. Yeah, it's very cool. And uh, something we had also discussed is that the Magic Blade... I mean, without getting too much into it, the Magic Blade is uh, a good example of the Zhang Hu, whereas Iron Monkey is a good example of the world outside of the Zhang Hu that these Sha find themselves walking in a lot of the time. Yeah. So, do you want to do you want to fill us in on this heterotopia concept that uh, yeah that you brought up? It comes from the philosophy of Michel Foucault, a uh, French philosopher, and a couple pithy definitions to help us understand what heterotopia is. First of all, heterotopia is a word that completes a set with utopia and dystopia, whereas utopia is an idealized version of the real world, and dystopia is, a, uh, I guess, the opposite of an idealized version of the real world. A heterotopia is just a place that is slightly different from the real world. To quote Wikipedia, these are spaces of otherness that are simultaneously physical and mental, such as the space of a phone call or the moment when you see yourself in the mirror. Another good pull quote is, these spaces have more layers of meaning or relationships to other places than immediately meet the eye. 
uh, one of the things that Foucault talked about were these uh, ritualized spaces. For example, a bathhouse is a good example of a ritualized space. You go there and it's it's a place that's not at all like the real world. Most people aren't chilling out naked in a pool together. Uh, but it has its own rules and it, it has its function in society and it's it's adjacent to society. Um, but to apply it more directly to the Zhang Hu of Kung Fu movies, the Zhang Hu is, like we said in the original definition, simultaneously physical and mental. It's the network of relationships between all of these Sha, these knight errants. It's also the mental space that they occupy as they go about their tasks, it's it's a mindset as much as it is a practice or a physical space, right? And the and the abilities of the the knight errants as they travel through the world bend the the Zhang Hu mm-hmm. in 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 really interesting ways, mm-hmm. and and they are it is an area of larger than life characters because this is where the knight errants that we talked about from last time can all exercise their larger scale, you know, where if they, if they go to the village, they are the biggest character in town. Mm-hmm. But in, when they are amongst the Jiang Hu, they're in that world, then they are of a piece with other characters that are similar. Right. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we talked earlier about how the knight errant values all of these things, uh, all of these different virtues and, and and what have you more than they value their own life and the Zhang Hu is the world that they live in once they decide that these things are more important to them than life it's it's the place that is their home for larger than life living the last thing i want to do to distinguish the Zhang Hu is uh there's another term in the wuxia canon i guess you could say the Zhang Hu is amoral. It includes all of these larger-than-life characters regardless of their moral stance, whereas a subset of the Zhang Hu, the Wu Lin, which translates literally as warrior's forest, is the community of virtuous knight errants uh, within the Zhang Hu. So the Zhang Hu is everyone, whereas the Wu Lin excludes outlaws and vicious people. It's more like your your merry men than just uh, a than, than including everyone that might be poachers and other common criminals exactly that that would include that the Wu Lin would just be the merry man yeah and I mean to tease something that we're going to discuss in Iron Monkey the Zhang Hu would also include the royal minister and his fallen Shaolin monks whereas uh, sorry yeah the Zhang Hu would include everybody whereas the Wu Lin would just be Iron Monkey and Wang Kai Ying and the people that are connected to them. But I guess at that point, we can just jump right into the discussion about Iron Monkey. So, uh, Absolutely. I mean, what a great picture. Uh, I really recommend this. I, if I had seen it, it's been so long since I had watched it, and it really captures you. And I, there's a lot of things I want to talk about beyond the Zhang Hu, and we may have to circle back around to Iron mm-hmm. Monkey, but it's a great way of showing how the Zhang Hu is established within the world, like where exactly it sits. Because do you want to give a, a quick summary of Iron Monkey, or do you want me to? Yeah, I can do that. So first of all, it's I think I think I've said this before. I consider it to be my favorite Wuxia movie. I think it captures enough of the tropes I enjoy to be what I would consider a perfect Wuxia movie. It's got. Uh, it's got a lot of great action. It's got a lot of excellent world building. Some of the character development gets a little squirrely here and there. Some of the some of the character bits are a little bit uh, throwaway, but it's also got really just 
silly comedy. Man, some of the stuff that happens in this movie is just so goofy, and I love it. It's really funny. I mean, but the comedy really works. A lot of times when you watch a, an older movie that's a little melodramatic, and it's got kind of the cheap mm-hmm. comedy in it, the jokes yeah. don't land. But I was actually laughing at the jokes that were going oh, on yeah. in Iron Monkey. And the thing, the thing that really impressed me about it was they could turn on a dime from a joke to all of a sudden that joke isn't mm-hmm. funny anymore because they've changed the the situation yeah. has changed and now the thing that you're laughing at is deadly serious. Yeah, you get the impression watching this movie that they wear their they wear the situations they experience on their sleeve, but there's always this deep undercurrent of emotion or of history that supports every scene that happens. And so yeah, to give a quick overview of the movie, basically there is this corrupt town in China uh, in the 1850s, and the governor is hoarding food, and he's levying crazy taxes, and he punishes people really severely all the time, and everyone is suffering pretty badly. There are a lot of refugees, and so there's this figure, the Iron Monkey, who is basically almost literally a Robin Hood analog. He steals from the governor and gives the money and the food that he gets from the money to the poor and the refugees and all that stuff. And he just helps make their lives better. And the governor is furious about this because he's so greedy. All he cares about is his own money and his own food and his nine wives. And uh, so he's got a huge reward out for the iron monkey. And then two really famous characters in the Wuxia canon, uh, Wong Kai-ying and his son, Wong Fei-hung, who we may remember from Drunken Master, played by Jackie Chan. These two come to town, and they're just minding their own business, but they get caught up in this, and it turns out that Wong Kai-ying, who is this famous warrior, he's one of the ten tigers of Canton as a historical figure, he is drafted into trying to figure out who Iron Monkey is and bring him to justice. And in the course of this, you run into... Like I said, fallen Shaolin monks and corrupt officials and corrupt city guards who nevertheless have a heart of gold and uh, just some really amazing characters. And then, I mean, is there a better final fight in any Kung Fu movie ever <laughs> balanced on those poles above the fire? The the uh-huh. Shaolin traitor oh, is man. amazing. He's terrifying and he's a legitimate threat. And I want to I want to circle back and, and talk about that. After we kind of talk about the the Jung Hu, because there's Absolutely. a lot of pieces from this movie that that I want to I want to pull out sure. and and take a closer look at. One of the things that I really liked about when so they establish Iron Monkey mm-hmm. as this Robin Hood figure, and then Wong Kai Ying comes into town and he gets he basically gets into a fight and it demonstrates that he he mm-hmm. is a is a talented warrior. And they're on the lookout for a, a talented warrior, so he gets rounded up with uh, in the mm-hmm. in the search for yeah. Iron Monkey, and that's one of those scenes that starts out funny. Oh yeah, because I mean, and then you've gets got, real at the beginning the the one guy is a street performer who has a pet monkey who performs with him, and while this governor is like eating soup like shark fin soup and yelling at all these people he's brought in who are clearly not the Iron Monkey, this actual monkey does a handstand and moons the guy <laughs> and like <laughs> right, that's yeah. how the scene starts and then by the end of it the governor is about to torture a child <laughs> it's like it's um, i mean it's amazing it's they change 
this situation. Because before it's, haha, Iron Monkey has clearly got the best of the mm-hmm. governor. And then it takes, uh, when Wong Kaying comes mm-hmm. in from this outside world and also demonstrates these qualities that the Iron Monkey has, mm-hmm. he's clearly a good guy. Oh, like, yeah. You see him and you're like, okay, Wong Kaying is a good guy. Mm-hmm. And Iron Monkey is also a good guy. But they do this really clever thing where they, he gets rounded up and his son gets rounded up as well. And they say, great, well, if you're not the Iron Monkey, we're going to hold your son until you find the Iron Monkey. Mm-hmm. And so now you've got, a, you've got a situation where you can have two good guys that I – mean, this isn't Five Deadly Venoms. This isn't – this is a little more black and white. Yeah. That, but you can have two good guys in conflict with each other. Mm-hmm. And it's really clever. For a sizable um, chunk of the movie, too. And by the way, Wong Kai-ying, played by young buck Donnie Yen. Oh, man. I It's one of my favorite performances of his. I've seen, you know, six or seven of his movies, and he just kills it in this. Um, the choreography, the characterization, all of it. Like, whenever he first starts his search for Iron Monkey, and all of the villagers are like, no, Iron Monkey helps us. We're not going to help you. Like, we're not going to give you food unless you pay ten times the price or whatever. Uh, and his just... Sadness. He's reduced to almost eating a piece of cast-off food off of the ground. Yeah. <laughs> before he's brought in by what turns out to be the Iron Monkey. Uh-huh. There's just really great tension there. Mm-hmm. And when we when we talk about the tabletop, there is a certain part of dramatic irony mm-hmm. that I think could be, definitely be expressed at the table. Totally. Where irony, nor- irony normally has zero place for me in a kung fu setting mm-hmm. let's talk about the setup for the jong hue and iron monkey yeah so what we had discussed earlier is that the magic blade is maybe a better example of the jong hue itself whereas iron monkey is a better example of the world that surrounds it right um and so what we're looking at here is the geopolitical uh situation that makes the jong hue necessary uh, like I said, the governor is really corrupt. He's created huge inequality in his in his city. He has everything and basically everyone else has nothing. And you see that even in the first scene where the Iron Monkey character gets introduced. He's a doctor and he's, first of all, writing with both hands at the same time. Really cool kung fu skill, if you ask me. Oh, it was super good. Yeah. And I love I love uh, Iron Monkey socialism that's going on. Oh, where yeah, for sure. The yeah. guy that can't afford to buy the the guy that can't afford to pay for the medicine gets the medicine for free. Mm-hmm. And then he's got this rich guy, and he's like, "Great, your medicine's a hundred gold, yeah. or whatever." And he's like, "What? You gave that guy his medicine for free?" Yeah. And he said, "But you can afford to pay it. Mm-hmm. And would you want cheap medicine?" Mm-hmm. Yeah. And he it's- tricks he tricks the uh, the decadent government man into paying for the medicine yeah and i was going to say i don't this isn't the 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 episode to have this conversation but i know that maybe uh in one of the next episodes uh, we're going to talk about your idea that every expression of violence is also an expression of character and i've been really looking out for that in the movies that we've watched and I, i was trying to think okay i think everything the iron monkey character does is tricky it's surprising in some way you know his fighting style the things that he does when interacting with other people it's constant trickery and that fits with the cultural expression of monkeys in chinese culture as far as i'm aware right 
Um, and the uh, and yeah. the monkey from Journey to the West. Yeah, exactly. And and that very first scene he's in, not only is he being a benevolent good guy, but he's also using his wiles to trick this rich man into paying for the poor man's medicine. And it's just it's uh, this movie is so tight from beginning to end because right after that moment, the guy starts to object, and then the chief shows up, the the guard chief, Chief Fox, and. Uh, the the rich man is like, oh, well, I can just bribe you. And then the guy's like, are you bribing me in public? No way. You're going to prison. And that establishes the world. It establishes the character and everything. Because the chief, of course, does accept the bribe. He just punishes the guy for giving it. Right. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, the, there's a lot of great character stuff that gets that gets set up mm-hmm. in in the beginning of this. And there you're right. There's a couple of spots that are sort of loose around the edges. Yeah, but when I was watching it, it very much resembled a tabletop game. I said, "Okay, mm-hmm. well, who would who would the player characters be?" Absolutely. Talking about the 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 decadent, ineffectual government, mm-hmm. and then the sort of the poor, helpless villagers mm-hmm. creates that space for the Jung Hu to operate in. Exactly, and we only get to see that in a couple of examples. We get to see Iron Monkey. Mm-hmm. We could see Wang Ke Ying and mm-hmm. uh, and even uh, a young Wang Fei Hung mm-hmm. uh, get to do his stuff. There's a a Iron Monkey's love interest slash yeah. apprentice, Lady Chu, I think. You know that relationship reminds me a lot of Limu Bai and uh, Yushu Lian in um, in Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon because it's it's as if they do love each other, but for some reason they're not able to express it or consummate it or something you know i'm wondering if there's a cultural thing that that i'm not getting when i watch it i think so i mean i'm drawing all of this from crouching tiger at this point but i know that there was a circumstance where honor forbade limu bai and shulian to get together and i assume that something similar is the case in iron monkey i mean we learn pretty much their entire relationship history about how he rescued her uh in her moment like her deepest darkest moment but yeah i i don't know if it's supposed to be a situation where she is his ward and that makes it unacceptable or if some other thing comes to pass but it it seems like a deeply confucian situation where Mm -hmm. protocol demands that they not express their love for each other right right and uh and that's a great another great source of tension that we can pull apart that's not directly related to the jong hu but is a is a great piece of dramatic tension Right. I will say, I think the moment that most clearly demonstrates the Jiang Hu is what I would describe as the B plot, because the A plot is clearly Iron Monkey and the government uh, fighting against each other. Sure. But the B plot is Wang Kaiying, whenever he gets brought into this, he has his own history. And that history is that he was connected to the Shaolin Temple, but the Shaolin Temple has fallen because this prodigy of the temple turned against them and took a bunch of fallen monks with him. And that prodigy has turned into the royal minister and he has position in government because of his corruption. And so we get to see how Wang Kaiying faces off with these Shaolin traitors, they're called. And we see how that world affects the wider world because their grudge is personal, but the guy has a position in government and he's bringing his disgrace into the government itself well and he's also bringing a a knight errant scale Mm -hmm. into this governmental role oh man and what a scale this what a scale and so (laughs) the the shaolin trader hin hung 
uh, in this is this terrifying figure. And he oh, comes man. in and he immediately demonstrates that he's the most fallen of fallen monks. Mm-hmm. He comes in and he orders meat. And mm-hmm. he's ordering everyone around, and he steals the governor's wives out from underneath all, him. All nine of them. Yeah, all nine of them. <laughs> and and it's it's amazing because that's another one of those things that turns that the governors have been a terrible person, and you kind of feel bad for him. I know it, it's it's absurd, but it happens, right? And because and and this is a thing that I wanted to touch upon was that Hin Hung, the Shaolin trader. He's got that knight errant scale. Uh-huh. The movie does a really good job of showing how powerfully he is. So mm-hmm. he has a run in with the Iron Monkey, mm-hmm. and he uses this poison hand technique. Yeah, poison Buddha's palm. But well, yeah. and that moment, I wanted to talk about that moment a little bit too, because that's a that's a fight between Iron Monkey and uh, Hin Hong and Wang Kai Ying. And Wang Kaiying immediately recognizes you're using the Buddha's palm, and that is, I assume, a Shaolin technique. And then Hin Hong is like, no, you know the poisoned Buddha's palm. And I was like, oh, man, he's a fallen monk. If the Buddha's palm is a Shaolin technique, of course a fallen monk would use a poisoned variation. Of right. It, Presumably Buddha's, Buddha's palm is a healing technique, right? And a poison oh. and an inverted you know, poison Buddha's palm. Mm-hmm. is the the worst thing that could be and they treat it like that so yeah. they treat the traitor hin hung's scale as being enormous and it really mm-hmm. gives the movie stakes yeah and it's a tiny thing but i think one of my favorite things about this character is that whenever he actually does his hand position for the buddha's palm there's mm-hmm. this sound effect that sounds like they're dragging a cinder block across the ground or something it's this <laughs> glorious kind of crunchy drag Oh man. And that the first time I saw this movie, I watched that and I think I got chills when I saw that, you know, I was just like, Oh, <laughs> it's getting real. <laughs> well, and then they both iron monkey and Wong Kai Ying almost get killed mm-hmm. by Hin Hung. And it's only the fact that iron monkey and Wong Kai Ying are both talented doctors mm-hmm. that, that they can, that they persevere. And, and did you notice at least in the copy that I watched, a little bit of uh, the five deadly venoms kind of kind of crop up. Oh, really? Uh, yeah, because Iron Monkey treats the poison with poison. Oh, yeah. No, you're right. Uh, and so he was like, "Oh, we treat with centipede, and we treat with lizard, and we treat with toad." And I was like, "I know those names." I didn't uh, make that connection until just now, but you're totally right. That's that's really cool. And so it's it's one of those uh, that's a I mean that's more of a cultural thing and that's more of an elemental thing, uh, but when we get when we talk later about gameable things that you can take, taking those themes and cultural ideas mm-hmm. and uh, developing your own for your own world mm-hmm. and and then repeating them so that they they come up again gives the world this this sense of consistency yeah should we roll on to the magic blade i mean i we can we can gush about iron monkey for a while we but could I, and i think we can circle back around to it but let's talk about now that we now that the stage is set for how the jung hu can can get into the situation between the government and the people mm-hmm. let's talk about the 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 jung hu itself and about a movie that's all about it 
Absolutely. Yeah. Well, and to be fair, we could gush about the magic blade all day too, because it's got so much good stuff in it. Oh man. I really enjoyed this movie. And I think I've said on, on the show before, the older movies for me are a little bit harder to watch because while I like the melodrama and while I like the artifice, I prefer a slightly more deft touch or I prefer slightly higher production value. But this one, it was as absurd as any Kung Fu movie from the seventies, but it was so good too. It, it had such dense plot going on. I think every single character had some sort of sudden revelation, like a character revelation in the midst of it. It was so right. Cool. Right. And, and things that happened earlier in the movie pay off later. Oh, and yeah. it's, it's, it's really, uh, for a movie that's entirely about the world of the Jung Hu. Mm-hmm. And doesn't really like wander into the the government or the village like we see with with Iron Monkey. Mm-hmm. It's it shows you how you could set a whole scenario or a whole adventure within that world. Mm-hmm. So to give a recap of what the Magic Blade is about, so the movie starts out with Yen Nanfei, and he is. You're not sure exactly what's going on. He's enjoying some dance and he's having some some good food. And then this mysterious swordsman shows up. Mm-hmm. And it's Fu Hung Su. And they have scheduled a rematch. A year ago, they had dueled and Yen Nanfei had lost to Fu Hung Su. Mm-hmm. And so the, now is the time when they when they will come together and they will duel. And so Yen Nanfei was in, he took the year to enjoy himself and, and get all of the pleasures of the world in case he died in this duel. Mm-hmm. So Yen and Fu duel and then they are immediately beset by assassins who are trying to kill Yen. Mm-hmm. And from that point on, they become allies because they have sworn that only the other one should die by the other one's hand. But people are out to kill Yen. Yeah, and they take on the entire Jung Hu to make sure that only they can kill each other. It's oh, it's so cool. I mean, the first scene, you can tell that the movie's not screwing around. No. It's they say, oh, well, we're going to go back to the village and we'll we'll see what's going on. We'll investigate this situation. And this, it's not a real village. They go and they 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 get into this scene and they're having a meal and... Literally everyone in the town is an assassin. Yeah. Yeah. From the children to the old lady to devil grandma, mm-hmm. who's a cannibal <laughs> and is hilariously theatrical. Oh, man. Well, and talking about the theatricality of this movie, it's incredible to me the command. I think it's a really clear demonstration of the command that knight errants exert upon the world around them, right? At the very beginning, we've got you said Yen was uh, enjoying this dance and, and the show that was going on. And then Fu shows up, and all Yen has to do is clap his hands or whatever he does, and everybody there not only vacates the premises, but also completely tears down the set so that there's a space for them to duel. And then later on in the movie, when we're introduced to the Peacock King, uh, there's this huge 100-warrior battle where you've got like 50 people on either side, and they're just tearing into each other. And all the Peacock King has to do is say, stop. And all of them on both sides immediately obey. And we see this all throughout the movie. Little examples 
literally all over the place. It's so good. Oh, man. So we basically move from set piece to set piece where Fu and Yen are moving through the, the, the Jianghu and they're unraveling this mystery mm-hmm. of who wants Yen dead. Mm-hmm. And they find out that, that the leader of the, the, essentially the most powerful figure in the, the Jianghu is this guy named Yu. He only fears three things. He fears Fu, he fears Yen, and he fears the power of the peacock dart. Yeah. Oh. And the peacock dart is this mythical... I mean, when I talked about that a, a knight errant was sort of like being an atomic bomb in a person, mm-hmm. the peacock dart is literally, almost literally, an atomic bomb. Yeah. I mean, it, and- it, it has it's a weapon that can kill uh, an enormous amount of people. And yeah. so be- because... The Peacock King owns this, and, but he's getting older. Mm-hmm. He's now become a target, and now you wants this thing, and the only thing that he wants to do is he wants to consolidate his power. He wants to take out Yen, and he wants to take out Fu, and he wants to claim the Peacock Dart. And when he does that, his power over this, the, the Jianghu, will be unassailable. Mm-hmm. And, and, you, and you say with that, okay, well, if that's the truth, then his power over the whole world is unassailable. Mm-hmm. There's the quote toward the beginning where they're talking. It's where they first introduce you. And there's the quote where he says he controls the swordplay world and he wants to dominate it too. Uh, it's not just enough that he's a powerful influence upon the Jiang Hu. He also wants to be the only influence on it. And like you said, the peacock dart, oh, <laughs> it's like, so it looks like the most decadent Rococo iron cross you've ever seen and it's got each, it's got these removable darts all around it for those of you who haven't seen it. And one dart can kill what? A hundred people in a room? It just. Right. I, I think just because there happened to be that that was the maximum number of people that was in the room. Right. Yeah. It, it, it appears that its power is incalculable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's such a game changer. And then once they actually find it, the quest becomes. Okay, now we have to find this you character and we have to make sure that this doesn't fall into his hands and that we can use this against him to defeat him so that we can finally have our duel. And what are the places they go to? They go to that is it a tea house or a brothel? I think it's a brothel. They go to a brothel first, mm-hmm. and I think that's where they learn about the the peacock dart and all of that. And then they go to the tea house oh. and they have this very surreal experience, the tea house. Mm-hmm. Everyone is standing where they show up. Still. It's completely still, and there's people sitting at all of these tables, and nobody's moving, and it's because they're all corpses. Mm-hmm. They've all been plucked uh, except, by these two guys. Right, and so that's when we talk about the theatricality of the Zhang Hu, this movie has these set pieces mm-hmm. that you should watch this movie, and you should steal from when you build your set pieces. Absolutely. Because they have, they have so much detail in them. From the first one where the whole village turns on Yen and Fu. Or this very unnerving scene where they go into a tea house and everyone sitting at the table are all dead. Mm-hmm. And and then they get drawn into a fight because there's it's a trap. They're all traps. And they move from these they're moving through the underlings of Yu. He's got five underlings. Mm-hmm. And they move through them. And they have a different sort of encounter each time, every time they, they meet one. 
And that, I think that one was the most striking for me. There's some funny ones and there's some ones that really raise the stakes. Mm-hmm. But for setting apart what makes the Jung Hu heterotopic to, to go back to what we were talking to before, mm-hmm. that scene in the tea house that's completely still with, with dead men sitting at the tables, not drinking tea and not playing yeah. chess is, is it's like our world, but it's slightly different and. It's slightly different, right? Yeah, it's just adjacent to this world. Uh, we have to talk a little bit about Devil Grandma. There's the scene with her where it looks like the heroes are about to be captured and it's all going to be over because they are ambushed and trapped pretty much in this situation and Devil Grandma is going to get the best of them. And not only is she a cannibal who wants to eat them, but she also does incredible kung fu backflips and, and general kung fu fighting. Yeah, and that scene... It's, like you said, that's one that I think really raises the stakes as opposed to one that's just a clear demonstration of the otherness of the world. That one puts them in clear and present danger. And every time they go through, they manage to pass through one of these underlings of mm-hmm. you. He, they lose a little bit. Yeah. And they sort of manage to get through the tea house of the dead relatively unscathed. Mm-hmm. But then they go and they have the chess match with Devil Grandma and the other the other one and one of their the three people in this because there's Yen and there's Fu and then there's the daughter of the Peacock yeah. King and Yen disappears mm-hmm. and then when they meet up with when they have another encounter then it looks like Fu and the daughter of the Peacock King that she betrayed him and then and then Fu gets the ever-living crap beaten out of him because he gets poisoned by Devil Grandma. Mm -hmm. And it's... So that that raises the stakes again, that he's he's inches away from losing Mm -hmm. and inches away from giving up the peacock dart, which will literally end the Mm -hmm. world. Uh, And then we escalate that all the way up until we get to the final confrontation. Mm -hmm. And the most grand... Where we finally meet you. And it turns out... There's been one last great reveal hidden from the very beginning. <laughs> yeah, and I kind of don't want to spoil Yeah, I don't it. either. Because uh, I really do want people to see this. But the, the, the thing about you is that he has gotten to the pinnacle. Mm-hmm. Right? He's been at the top for a long time. He's fabulously wealthy. Mm-hmm. He, despite his advanced age, is an extremely dangerous combatant. And I love the quote. I don't know if it's actually at the beginning or if it's here at the end, but uh, one of the characters says, you know, it's lonely at the top of your field. There's no room for friends, only competition. And that's so emblematic of the Jung Hu to me. Once you reach a certain level, this world that is defined by violence and is perpetuated by an endless cycle of violence, you always have to be watching your back. Uh, the Peacock King suffers it just as much as every other character does. And and. Fu is sort of existing in this sort of terrible in-between space because you find out partway through the movie that he had a great love Mm -hmm. and he went off to exert his control over the world. Mm -hmm. And in the time that he was gone, he lost her. She she married someone else. Yeah. And so he is also trapped in this world, even though he is the good guy of the movie. Mm -hmm. He's just as trapped in the swordplay world as as you is as you we find out that you is because you is growing old right and he he wants to he wants to stay at the top but 
he knows that that his time is sort of coming. Right. And he's doing everything he can to prevent it. To lend a little bit of a critical eye to these, I will say that in this movie, the whole idea that Fu has lost a love in the past, I'm like, well, okay, that, that feels a little forced. And by the same token, in Iron Monkey the the whole motif that the iron monkey had like his father was killed both of those seem like they're kind of tired tropes to me so these movies are not perfect don't go into these thinking they're perfect but they're still really good and really worthwhile and and i think part of that is just the function of them being melodramas well of course yeah you do have to have a little bit of uh i won't say stereotypical but archetypal uh tropes at play you know it is a little like Yes, if this was a modern story, we would have established that these things had happened in the past, mm-hmm. even with just the tiniest of flashbacks. Yeah. So we can we can take these these melodramatic archetypes and we can make them more real mm-hmm. when we tell our stories. Yeah. Or you know you don't have to if you want to tell a yeah. really uh, if you want to tell a really exaggerated story like that, then more power to you. I was going to say uh, jumping back to Iron Iron Monkey for just a second, the scene where all of the people are in the governor's office and they're being accused of being the iron monkey. We talked about how that starts off as really comedic and then it gets really serious. And isn't that exactly how almost every role-playing game goes? I mean, unless you go in from the beginning with this idea that you're going to be dramatic, chances are a bunch of friends getting together to roll some dice are going to crack jokes. But then the GM most of the time is going to end up eventually dropping some sort of hammer on them. And there's going to be a real game changer moment. And that's just, that scene is, I think, role playing in microcosm. I, I think it is. I think it's. I think it's what I want to happen mm-hmm. because I think what normally happens is actually the inverse of that. That we have these lofty ideals of of being dramatic and telling the serious story, mm-hmm. and then it becomes goofy monkey mooning. Right. Yeah. Like, like ten minutes in, and we can't we can't draw it back in. Right. But it's it's a great thing to show the power of switching tones mm-hmm. very quickly if you if and your players are comfortable with it the whiplash that it creates really heightens both of them it makes the comedy much funnier mm-hmm. and it makes the the dramatic much more serious mm-hmm. i agree so anyway that's enough for iron monkey i wanted to jump back and give some final thoughts about the magic blade so do you have any in mind the the one that that the movie really stresses it's it's the concept i think that that the movie wants to expose and challenge because it's said multiple times. So when they talk about the main character, Fu Hung Su, mm-hmm. there's a lot of people that say, Oh, well, Fu Hung Su is Fu Hung Su. And they say it in a way that means that because he is where he is in the world and because he has achieved the things that he has achieved, mm-hmm. he can do no other thing. Yeah. He's, it's not necessarily that he's uh, deficient. It's just that he is limited in his actions because he has to remain true to himself. He can't be someone other than himself. Right. And so when he does, when it looks like he's going to have a friend and when it looks like he's going to fall in love, kind of doesn't get resolved. I mean, parts of that don't, don't quite get resolved mm-hmm. uh, at the end of the movie. But it makes you wonder, well, is Fu Hung Su still Fu, Fu Hung Su at the end of the movie? Mm-hmm. He, does he still need to eschew the love and the companionship of other people yeah. so that he can travel through the world? Or is it time, did he learn the thing that he needed to learn by going through this gauntlet uh, that perhaps being in charge of the, the swordplay world is not all that it's cracked up to yeah, be? Yeah, exactly. 
No, I like that. The the idea that we are constrained by our previous choices. Even if we gain power, we're still limited in the in the path that we can take. And and that if you achieve a certain level, it's disgraceful and it's failure to go back down. Mm-hmm. You can only go up mm-hmm. at a certain point. And what you have to shed as you go up becomes more and more drastic until you get to be like you, who has everything mm-hmm. and only wants to keep everything, but doesn't actually have anything of true value. Mm-hmm. Like I said, it's a really cool example of the heights of melodrama in this genre while still telling a compelling story. I think to contrast you with mm-hmm. the Peacock King, he he meets a bad mm-hmm. end, unfortunately, but while he has the Peacock dart, he's able to have the love of a daughter and and a, and, mm-hmm. a, and a real life, right? Whereas he's he's sort of the anti you in that you is the is the 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 criminal side and the bad side and mm-hmm. the hedonic pleasure side and the peacock king is the the decorous and wise side. Yeah, so uh, I have some thoughts about that actually. If we were to jump into our gameable ideas section, yeah, let's do that. We can always pop back, but let's let's pop down to our gameable ideas and let's let's talk about what we're doing here. Sure. So uh, just to springboard directly off of that, I see. So in the previous episode, we talked about these five codes that the Shah follows, uh, and in particular, the two that were kind of hardest to decipher because they're really closely related to each other are Li and Yi, or decorum and wisdom, respectively. And I think the Peacock King is an example of the ultimate height of both of those codes. Uh, and like I said earlier, you know, he says stop, and a hundred warriors on both sides immediately obey. This is an example of not only knowing exactly what to do in the moment, but also having the wisdom to know when to apply it. And everyone knows that is the case. So if he says to do something, everyone knows he must be right. And then his lifestyle, just in general, is all about, he's always dropping these philosophical lines of poetry. He's always really courteous to the people he interacts with. He's always, uh, there's a lot of deference that's given to him all the time. And I think that's what it looks like when you've mastered decorum and wisdom. And then, like you said, you know, Yun uh, has a good example or is a good example of the more hedonistic side of that, uh, maybe corrupting into one of the uh, vices, whereas the codes are more like virtues. Right. And but it shows you that that you can have both of these can occupy that that same world. Yeah. And be at the top of that world even. Right. It's only the fact that the Peacock King has these darts that, that keeps him just slightly above you. Mm -hmm. So once, once that's pulled away, then you can, can rise up to the top and then it's up to our main character, obviously Mm -hmm. to come in and deal with that situation. Mm -hmm. But it's, it's interesting. The thing that I want to talk about as far as like gameable ideas is talking about who our, protagonists are Mm -hmm. the magic blade is a great movie but it has one protagonist right foo i think uh pretty pretty clearly yep yep it's clearly him and we follow him through the whole movie and then when he he gets his resolution the movie is it it just ends right uh whereas iron monkey i i stepped back and i looked at it and i thought okay well who in this if we're looking at 
uh, who is a knight errant, and then who is a character mm-hmm. that uh, like a player character. So Iron Monkey, Wong Kai Yin, mm-hmm. Wong Fei Hung, mm-hmm. yeah, and I think Miss Orchid all qualify as as potentially player characters. I think so too. Miss um, Orchid is the one who comes closest to being demoted just because she isn't given as much screen time as the others. But those first three, absolutely, they're all player character status. And I think an interesting additional kind of liminal character there is Chief Fox because Chief Fox, he always loses, but he can hold his own in a fight for a little while. He's got, he's got a decent amount of power and I could see that being a player character. It would just, to use D and D terminology, the first three are all level 15, and he's, like, level 7. <laughs> yeah, it, it would be really, for it to be a player character, it would have to be someone who is really committed to playing the bad guy, and then and then having, he gets to use a wrestling term, he gets a face turn yeah. partway through. He gets, you go, oh, we thought Chief Fox was a bad guy, yeah. but he kind of knows more than, you know, he knows he's being bumbling... Partly because he's bumbling, but also because he knows more than he's letting on. Right. Right. And so he's secretly helping the Iron Monkey with his schemes by being an an ineffective police officer, essentially. And, you know, he's also, I mean, he's taking bribes from brothel owners and and nobles, but he's also uh, making sure that his soldiers get food when their salaries are docked. He, right. He's a sympathetic character in the sense that he does have some morals and he does care about the people that are close to him. And he does seem to get along pretty well with Iron Monkey's alter ego. It's a really fascinating character and it would be fun to play in that ensemble. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you were going to create a game that sort of replicated Iron Monkey, I think it's one of those things that you could definitely do mm-hmm. because all of the characters tie together in really interesting ways and they all pull and push on each other. Yeah. You know, we talked about Iron Monkey and Wong Kai-in both being the goodest of good guys mm-hmm. but having to come together in conflict because of the threat to Wong Kai-in's son. Mm-hmm. And then so the Iron Monkey then goes and as his alter ego as the Doctor... Which is a thing that I did not expect. I expected him to go and snatch the kid as the yeah. Iron Monkey. Mm-hmm. But he goes in in his civilian persona to rescue the kid. Mm-hmm. And so that changes that changes the dynamic. But it doesn't... It doesn't st- because he goes in as his civilian persona and not as the Iron Monkey, mm-hmm. then the Iron Monkey and Wong Kai-in can still be at odds. Whereas Wong Kai-in and the Doctor can be friends. Right. And that sets up eventually the moment when they're able to become allies because the, the same person who is the doctor and iron monkey has indebted, has made Wong Kaiying indebted to him. Uh, and Wong Kaiying is happy to be indebted to him because he's a good guy fundamentally. And that's what makes Wong Kaiying realize, Oh wait, iron monkey is not the man I need to be pursuing and fighting right now. But to tie this into the wider Zhang Hu, it's interesting that Iron Monkey exists fully in the Zhang Hu and the Doctor exists fully outside of it. And they each have strengths that they can apply, not only in... Well, I guess, no, because the prison where he rescues the the little boy is an example of the Doctor acting in his own domain. The prison is not the Zhang Hu, you know? It's a place, right. it's a place that is pretty mundane. 
and the Doctor is able to get in there and make things happen. And in the Magic Blade, by the same token, it takes place almost entirely within the Jonghu, but it's still these relationships that build the world. It's not the case that these are characters who are interacting with a world that's fundamentally separate from them. It's that the world is created by the way the characters are connected to each other. I think what we can see is that the world that's created Mm -hmm. as the knight errant sort of express themselves and that creates the the, the Jianghu and we get that sort of theatricality that happens. We get this heterotopic world where it's, it's part theatrical and it's part real, but the stakes are all very high. And we can see, I mean, obviously in the Magic Blade, it's right there out in the open. Mm Mm-hmm. But what it does in Iron Monkey is when you put that into the the real setting, it makes all of these characters that much larger. Yeah. So when Iron Monkey and Wong Kiyin and the Shaolin Trader are fighting in their duel at the end, it's preposterous. <laughs> oh, man. Right? I will say I love a lot of the wire work in the movie. Like at the very beginning when they're uh, collecting the papers that have been blown away in the wind, I think that's oh my gosh. really solid wire work. At the end, the spectacle is so incredible that they can't really – do wire work in such a way that it looks real. But by that point, you're like, well, I mean, the spectacle speaks for itself. I don't need realism right now because we're, we're well past that point. <laughs> Absolutely. And what they've done by, by, by showing that actually that paper gathering moment, mm-hmm. uh, there's a really lovely moment at, at, at the beginning of the Iron Monkey where uh, he comes home and these papers blow all over the place and he and Miss Orchid do this light body work where they, they jump up and they gather up all of these papers that are blowing all over the mm-hmm. room. And it's, it's such a skillful way of demonstrating their scale. Yeah. In comparison, like that's not a thing that we could see chief Fox or the governor. Yeah. Do. We don't, we don't hear them having a conversation about, Oh yeah. Well, now that the work is done for the day, we can be iron monkey and sidekick. It's we're seeing wordlessly, that they have this level of power, and so surely he must be the Iron Monkey. And so then when when we get to the end, and they're standing on poles that are on fire, and they're jumping on each other's shoulders, and they're fighting the, the Shaolin traitor, that, all of that scale, because they've brought that knight-errant scale, mm-hmm. and that piece of the Jong-Hu has penetrated into the civilian world, mm-hmm. you don't care that that last part is so over the top, yeah. right? Because you're in, you've you've bought into that heightened that heightened sense of reality that happens when these characters are around. If it was Chief Fox up on the pole, you'd be like, "Nope, no way, movie. I am checked out. Get out of here, Fox. <laughs> Get out of here, Fox. This is not a thing that you can do." Yeah. But when you, but the movie has gradually stepped us up. Yeah. And and even through some of the underlings of uh, some of the evil monks. That have come in because they are also dangerous. Yeah. And they also have their own theatricality and scale mm-hmm. that pushes the boundaries out of what's believable. Yeah. But it's still always affecting the real world that they're operating in. It's not like in the Magic Blade, where the Magic Blade is anything can happen. 
Right. We can have a giant chess game with real people, and Devil Grandma can run around and do backflips. Yeah. We can have a tea house where literally everyone is dead, except for these right. two guys who are playing chess, to, and it's basically camouflage for them to play chess together. And what Iron Monkey does that, that the Magic Blade doesn't is it shows us what that can look like when you bring that scale down a little bit. Mm-hmm. But it's or not not bring the scale down, but bring that scale into you put it up against a normal frame of reference. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you can see how big that is. And I think that's a really valuable technique. I agree. Well, and something that I think in general about Iron Monkey, one of the reasons why it occupies a real sweet spot for me is that it's late enough in the timeline of Kung Fu movies. It's 1993. So it's late enough that the production values are pretty good. There's a lot of really great camera work there. Well, camera work. There's a lot of the film technology is good. And a lot of the set pieces and the lighting is really good. The wire work is pretty good, but at the same time, it's not so far down the timeline that we're starting to introduce CGI. And so these are all practical effects. And that's just such a sweet spot for me where we're not, where we're still doing the wire foo and we're still doing however many takes it, it requires to get a shot, right? Yeah, I just, I love every second of it. And, and yeah. we can see everything that's going on. That, like, all, when all right. the action happens, it's, it's all clear. And it all seems mm-hmm. like it's actually moving through air mm-hmm. and has a weight to it. So now that we've gushed over the Magic Blade and Iron Monkey as much as we can, and we've talked about some of the gameable ideas, I want to talk about mm-hmm. actual game mechanics that, like the Iron Monkey, you should steal and enrich all of the play at your table with when we talked about the five codes of the knight errant and they had these there was these split virtues and vices it, it immediately brought up a couple of things one of them was the the virtues and vices from from pendragon and that's sort of a straight sort of one to one connection so that's a game literally about knights and they and their behavior and how the game mechanic controls that and you should definitely check that out but the thing that i really want to highlight is so there's a game called Shooting the Moon by Emily Kerr Boss and it's a it's not a fighting game it's not it's not a game about knights it is a game about a love triangle mm-hmm. it's a three player game where two people play to suitors competing for the affection of a third character the beloved and the character creation in this is really what I'm circling back around to those split virtues and vices mhm because what ends up happening is that the beloved, you create a bunch of characteristics for the beloved. And then you create a synonym and an antonym for each one. And you divide those up amongst the suitors for the beloved. And what it does is it creates two characters that are exact foils of each other. Yeah. Right. So if the beloved is generous, then one suitor is giving and the other suitor is miserly. Mm, yeah. And, and these have in-game effects because they can be tagged and you can add, you can add other things to it. But having characters that are foils of each other is an extremely powerful story technique and it's an extremely powerful melodramatic technique. So we talk about these things being melodramas and we can see, we can see that even though they don't don't interact, that the Peacock King and you are foils of each other. Mm -hmm. They mirror, they are almost essentially the same character. Mm But whereas the Peacock King is a master of decorum and wisdom, and you is the opposite of mm-hmm. that, 
right? He's all about debauchery and craving. Mm-hmm. Uh, are you talking it about? It creates this really powerful dynamic. Is it you or is it Yen that we're talking about? I think you is the big bad. Right. Okay. And then Yen is the other swordsman. Yeah, that's right. Because I was going to say Yen and Fu are also good foils of each other. Yen is kind of lighthearted, uh, kind of carefree, and Fu seems really self serious and gloomy. You know. Right. Right. Absolutely. And then and then they have some other some other areas where they differ for like very dramatic effects. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the the power of splitting a concept into its synonym and its antonym mm-hmm. and then giving one to one character and one to another character creates automatic tension and it creates this spark where they can they can collide especially if they also have things in common mm-hmm. or they can't occupy the same space at the same time. Yeah. And this kung fu system that we're talking about will probably not explicitly and exclusively put characters into direct competition with each other in the same way that shoot the moon does or shooting the moon. But at the same time, conflict is a key element. I mean, to use iron monkey as an example, Wong Kai Ying and iron monkey are opponents for the first act of the movie. So it's definitely possible and even common that our PCs will have some contentious moments between each other. And setting it up to where they're essentially foils really helps to accomplish that. It puts you in the the right frame of mind and it puts you in the, it it already gets the story moving Mm -hmm. when you enter play. You're like, great, we already have a thing that we can work on. It's like the, the relationships and fiasco that have that tension in them already built. Mm -hmm. And then you can do what you want with those, but that tension is going to create interesting things to happen. The other thing that I wanted to talk about is there's a game it's unfortunately it's not out yet so i'm being the the most hipster of hipsters but it should be out soon it's a game called trouble for hire yeah i backed it nathan actually did a layout for the blackwood for me yeah i got to play it with nathan last year and game designers watch out for trouble for hire it does some super interesting stuff especially for single protagonist games uh, I could go on and gush about Trouble for Hire for quite a while. It's by Kevin Allen Jr. Uh, it should be out, I think, fairly soon. There is a part of Trouble for Hire that you establish certain themes for the game, and they come with a currency on them. If you use the theme, you get to take some of that currency, and then that makes your personal role a little more flexible. You get There's more that you can do with it. And then there are some places that you can create new themes if you want to create a sense of theatricality mm-hmm. or you want to you want to have a theme of even something like poison because poison's kind of a theme a poison and medicine are kind of are, are run through iron monkey yeah right you could create that as a theme well and even more so through uh five deadly venoms right right and that that when you bring those in if they make your what you do more powerful or they make what you can do more flexible mm-hmm as a as a player, mm-hmm. then then you're gonna be like, yes, I want to bring that into my narration. I want to create that cohesion. Yeah, like exactly like we were talking about where the the five venoms appeared in name only in in Iron Monkey, mm-hmm. you know, as actual poisons, but it, it it sort of creates this through line across a larger world. And that's a yeah. thing that themes can really help you do. And, you know, I like the idea of making these themes explicitly atmospheric themes. They don't start off as character themes. They start off as things that happen in the 
out in the world. There is a lot of poison going on out in the world, and your characters have the opportunity to capitalize upon that presence to gain power, but there has to be a consequence too. But it's not the case that, like, if we have a theme of poison, for example, none of the characters are poisoners on their own, but they have the opportunity to to make use of that somehow. They have some skill that allows them to invoke that. Right. It comes up like that's a thing that the enemy has yeah. or that is a uh, like an iron monkey. You could even wrap that in because there's a plague going on. Mm hmm. Right. Yeah. And that so if you're if you're wrapping that into your narration as as an exterior threat, that then you get to what because you've you've taken on that theme and you've incorporated it into the larger narrative, that then your character gets to do more. Mm hmm. It's a great sort of meta technique. Yeah. So a, a nice explicit example from Iron Monkey 2, uh, there's the fight between the four fallen monks and Miss Orchid. And Miss Orchid is clearly better than all four of them put together. They just really don't stand a chance. And then there's a moment where one of them says, I'm not going to be humiliated by a woman. And he pulls out sleeping powder, which again, a poison, basically. Right. And he throws that in Miss Orchid's face. And all of a sudden, they can overpower her because she's been weakened. And what that said to me was that the four monks on their own can't beat her. But if they make use of this, as you say, a theme, then they gain some power. But this particular theme is a disgrace to invoke. So they sacrifice their honor, their standing, so that they can gain more power in this situation. And that goes back to some of the ideas that we've been kicking around since the very beginning of this thing. Yeah, absolutely. That's a good one to think about. I think we can probably call it there for the, the stealing section. Agreed, yeah. <laughs> but uh, but everybody, you know, uh, think about that. Definitely go, if you ever get a chance, watch Iron Monkey and think about if this was playing out at a tabletop, who were the main characters and what's driving them to make these decisions? Oh, there was one thing I want to circle back and talk about Iron Monkey about. Sure. Uh, and this is the thing that really that caught my attention. And then we'll move on. Okay. But there is a part where if it doesn't involve the main characters, all of that stuff gets resolved instantly. Mm-hmm. So there's a part where Iron Monkey tricks the governor into opening the food stores mm-hmm. because the people are starving. And he, he's got this whole plan that he's going to sell the food and it's, he's going to make a bunch of money and blah, blah, blah. And Iron Monkey tricks him into, into opening that up and essentially giving it away. Mm-hmm. And we never have a scene where people are getting food and eating the food and doing the things with the food, yeah. right? Because it would just have been, we know that it happens. Yeah. The most we see, I think, is that we see the doors of the warehouse being opened and bags of rice or whatever being carried out. Uh, but we don't actually see anybody receive it. We don't see anybody eat anything. The personal narratives that have been created so far keep rolling along because now it's not about the governor and the food. Now all of a sudden it becomes, it's like, oh, that, that problem's over. Great. Movie's over. No, wait, here comes the fallen monks. Yeah. And so it, but it's just this tiny, the tiniest little breath. It doesn't let itself get airy. And lose the tension that they've created over the, the session. Mm-hmm. They go, great, that happened. Let's keep going. Mm-hmm. And it's really great pacing. And it's also one of those things that, hey, what happens to these other people? Well, they're not the main characters. So we're not actually going to pay attention to them. Yeah, we assume things happen to them. But what specific things, it doesn't really matter. Right, exactly, exactly. So that's a thing from Iron Monkey that feels... 
when you actually when you watch the movie, it stood out to me because it felt a little sloppy, mm-hmm. but it also felt like a thing that would work really great at the table. Yeah. Well, and you know, as much as it is kind of glossing over the background elements, it contributes to the overall focus of the movie. Like I said, the movie is so tight from start to finish. It feels like there's no wasted breath in any of its 90 plus minutes. And I I like including that in, it would almost be like, that's your reward element in this role-playing game. You go through scenes and you try to accomplish specific objectives. And then once you get all the objectives complete, you have your big payoff. The people get their food. We don't need to have the heroes be the ones to give out the food. I suppose they can, but we don't need that. We can move on to the next big problem. Right. Because at the same time, like you said, the food stores get given out and we're like, oh, that's the end of the movie. But wait, the fallen monks show up. And so every victory like that, every large scale victory is also an escalation. Right. Because that scale creates ripples. Mm-hmm. You exerted your your personal power on behalf of these people. Mm-hmm. And now what is the, the, the backlash of that? It's Oh, it's coming back and it's larger because now it's the fallen monks. Yeah. And it's a it's a really powerful thing, and it doesn't pad out the movie, but it also doesn't cheapen the victory. Right. I agree. So we got some questions. We did. We've got three so far, and anybody who wants to uh, submit some, please feel free. We'd love to answer them. But uh, do you want to tackle this first one? Sure. So way back from the lost episode, Carlin Kendrick graciously sent us this comment that Carlin was interested in our the our show uh, only if the talk eventually leads into how to tell kung fu stories in your modern settings or settings in general uh, what beats to hit what should be left out what westernisms that ruin the setting that kind of thing and he goes on to say feng shui 2 is a solid rule set but being able to tell a kung fu story is a challenge in itself mm-hmm. carlin's really hit on like what this show is about mm-hmm I think, you know, as much as we we're talking about it in game design terms, mm-hmm. we're also saying, OK, well, how do we t- how do we even tell Kung Fu stories? Yeah. Uh, what parts do they have? Yeah. I saw him make that comment and I kind of rubbed my hands together. and I was like, ooh, buddy, if we do what we set out to do, then this is the podcast for you. <laughs> right. So, yeah, exactly. So I think we're on our way. When he talks about Westernisms that ruin the setting, mm-hmm. I talked about irony earlier. Yeah. And... We have a hard time as gamers kind of being earnest and open to some of the stuff that really makes these wuxia movies as effective as they are. Yeah. The melodrama and the heightened stakes. And, you know, we talked about earlier that I always feel like my game sessions are we start with drama and then we end up with the monkey mooning people. Yeah. <laughs> and, and it's, it's, I think that's the, as a Western audience and as people who are consumers of media, like melodrama is like, it's just candy. Yeah. It's not a, uh, a deep art form necessarily. Like there are, there are certainly more ex- expressive and more challenging ways to tell stories. Yeah. But the reason that we still tell melodramatic stories is because they work. Right. And the only way that they work is if we buy into them. Mm-hmm. And we can't buy into them if we put ironic distance between us and the story. Right. Yeah, there can be no winking. It has to be sincere. Yeah. And so when I talk about – when I talked earlier about, oh, well, when the Iron Monkey and Wong Yin are friends in the civilian life but then enemies in the Jung-Hu life – 
that that creates some dramatic irony. Mm-hmm. That's not what I'm talking about. Dramatic irony is where we as the audience knows a thing that the characters don't know. Yeah. Whereas the irony that I'm talking about is the too cool for school. I'm not going to buy into this. I'm just going to step away and observe it from a distance. Yeah. It's almost the uh, antonym of sincerity, the way you're using it. Yeah, yeah. And I don't know that I'm using irony correctly. Well, but uh, I I don't know either. You know. <laughs> okay, good. We're not experts yeah. on the show in case you in case you haven't in case you haven't gathered that. But I think as we go, we definitely want to explore some more um uh modern movies and even some movies that are like explicitly western. Absolutely. And then we can see what kind of changes that has on a Wuxia story. Yeah. But the first one I really wanted to hit was like a lack of sincerity. Absolutely. Well, and you know, another, I think another thing that Carla might be asking here about Westernisms that ruin the setting is a broader question about cultural sensitivity. And uh, this is something that I've discussed with a few people, you included about uh, the new seventh seed Kickstarter. And I think it's easy to look at the seventh seed team and say, Oh, that's a bunch of white guys. Do they really need to be doing a, a setting that's set in Asia or in a, in a facsimile of Asia? But I think that it's important to, regardless of who you are, I think you can make a good setting if you make sure you're respectfully invoking the traits of the setting in, in question. You know, one of the, one of the conversations that I had, somebody pointed out that avoiding all statements is a good idea. It's not the case that all Japanese people value honor. It's the case that Japanese culture places a lot of value on honor. That doesn't mean that everybody does. It just means that that's one of the values that they hold higher than a lot of others. And so having that sort of sensitivity, which is a combination of research and experimentation, I think, unfortunately. (laughs) I think it's experimentation. I think it's also being a little vulnerable to people people calling you out and saying, hey, this this thing that you're doing isn't right. And instead of being defensive of saying... Yes, I okay, that's great. I will go and I will educate myself more about that. Yeah, and that's what I mean by experimentation. You know, I'm not talking about pushing the envelope. I'm talking about developing a hypothesis and testing it and then determining what is right and what is wrong and refining yourself accordingly. No matter what, no matter how erroneous or how much of a pastiche you start off with in your journey to represent another culture, as long as you're open to feedback and open to tweaking things and improving your representation, you're on the right track. So uh, Confucian Analect is appropriate here. Uh, I don't remember the number, but here is the gist of it. It says, as in building up a mountain of stones, if one bucket full short of completion, you stop, then you have stopped. But when filling in a canyon with stones, even if you've only put one bucketful in the canyon, if you go back for another bucketful, then you are making progress. And that's what I'm really trying to say here. It's not the case that you have to be good to do any work. It's that you have to keep working. You have to keep taking feedback and improving what you're doing. Yeah, so uh, Eric Simon also gave us a question. Uh, he said, I'm hoping that one of the tropes you hit is the kid and that you check out Mo Tse, who is a, a Child actor who worked with Jet Li a couple of times, Eric says, including on my favorite kung fu movie, The New Legend of Shaolin. Now, I'd never heard of this movie before he mentioned it, but I watched a trailer right afterward, and that's officially 
on our list of movies to watch because it looks so Oh, absolutely. Cool. <laughs> and the new Legend of Shaolin introduced Jet Li to me. Oh, cool. I hadn't known who he was as as an actor before that. And after that, I was like, who is this Jet Li guy? I will watch whatever. Yeah. Which leads you to watching things like The One and other questionable choices. But well. it, uh... <laughs> I watched it. It's not terrible, but it's certainly not good. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, but Mosa is... Uh, is an amazing uh, young martial artist in yeah. in the new Legend of Shaolin, and, and we got. It was so cool that we got this comment, and then we watched Iron Monkey, uh-huh. which had young Wong Fei Hung in. It. Yeah, and fun fact: Wong Fei Hung in this movie is actually played by a girl. Uh, I don't know how old she is, but um, she, yeah, she's great. She's good at the characterization oh of Wong Fei Hung, and she's also wicked with a staff. Oh man, she does some really great work in that movie. There's some great umbrella work in it too. Oh yeah, um, yeah. yeah. Think- we're 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 on the hunt for a a copy of New Legend of Shaolin that is subtitled yeah. because the dubbed version that we watched on YouTube was real bad, terrible, just the worst. Um, but <laughs> but when uh, when Eric talks about uh, character tropes like the kid, mm-hmm. uh, that's a thing where if we dig into uh, Feng Shui too, like Carlin mentioned, yeah, that's. Feng Shui 2 is an amazing game, mm-hmm. and if it gets one thing basically 100% right, it's character archetypes, mm-hmm. and it has a kid archetype. Yeah. And I think it's I think it's really amazing. I don't know that it's quite the same as, like, the Mosu Wuxia kid, mm-hmm. uh, but I'd have to go back and look. Well, I mean, Feng Shui 2, as good as it is, it's also not a Wuxia game. It's a game about all periods of kung fu movies i the game that or the the movie that i relate it to most is big trouble in little china it's got because it's got you know like the big bruiser uh jack burton archetype in in the game as well um so yeah the kid strikes me as more like uh what's that movie where the kid in brooklyn passes out and then he goes to fantasy china and he fights jackie chan and jet lee and uh came out not too long ago forbidden kingdom i think it's called that's more what he's talking about the kid who is living a normal life and then discovers he's some Kung Fu prodigy. But well, that's what Feng Shui is talking about. Eric is talking about the kid as just a young Kung Fu prodigy. I think let us know if it's not the case, Eric. Yeah, that's a good, that's a good point uh, to, to sort of like compare and compare and contrast those. And and one last comment, Jeremy Downey responding to me specifically about what he was interested in seeing in the show. So he's interested in Wuxia fights as storytelling and how to do that in an RPG context are particularly of interest to him. Mm-hmm. And that, I think, probably leads up into what we're going to be doing next time. I think so. And we haven't talked too much about the movies that we're going to watch for that one. But I think Hero is maybe a good modern example of, of violence as storytelling. Oh, that's a really good one. I think Hero is an excellent choice. Cool. We could probably just do Hero. Uh, we might decide to tack on another sure. one because we seem to like to do two movies. Yeah. There is um, plenty to talk about but, in Hero, though. Yeah, I mean, I was thinking, and then when we start talking about stakes in Wuxia fights, mm-hmm. we definitely have to go Crouching Tiger. Oh, no question. Keep your ears open for, for those when they when they drop, yeah. but expect those to be probably the next couple of shows that we Yeah, have. and Eric, I think by the time we start talking about the next episode, we've reached the end of this one, so uh, we should we should go ahead and do our sign-off, I suppose. Oh, and you said you were bad at segways. <laughs> that was excellent. <laughs> well, 
Phil provides so many excellent examples of that particular segue that I feel like I'm trained on it, you know? <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Well, and like Iron Monkey, we can also steal to, uh, to, to, to make this podcast a little richer. Absolutely, yes. That, wow, that was a good one. <laughs> okay, so Eric, uh, where can people find you? You can find me doing my thing at dogpoweredvehicle.com, uh, where I put up games... Uh, that are mostly unserious, but occasionally there, there might be one that's a little more serious. You can follow me on Twitter at Eric M. Farmer. Uh, you can also find me on Google Plus, uh, loitering around the misdirected market community. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, uh, I'm Eli Kurtz once again. So thanks everybody for tuning in. And you can reach me. Uh, my company is the Mythic Gazetteer. We have a website, mythicgazetteer.com. And then I'm also, frankly, a lot more active on, the Mythic Gazetteer Facebook page, on my own Google Plus page, just Eli Kurtz, and on Twitter at ZapDynamic. So yeah, this has been episode two of Jiang Hu Hustle. And uh, Eric, I think it was a, it was always a great time talking to you. Absolutely. And I'm, I'm looking forward to doing it again. Yeah, me too. Me too. I, especially thinking about Hero, I'm already a buzz with excitement. <laughs> I know it's, it's, it's sort of behind me to yeah. the left and I'm like, oh, I should just yeah. go get it off we the can, shelf. I can watch it tonight, right? Surely I can watch it. tonight. <laughs> I don't, I don't need to do work tomorrow. <laughs> yeah. We want to thank everybody for listening and remember to make your Kung Fu stronger. See you later. John who hustle is being released on misdirected Mark productions, the media arm of encoded designs.